Well, my guest is already making me laugh, but welcome back to Call Time with Katie Berenbaum. I'm so excited about this episode. This is a special episode, and it's one I've been wanting to do for a while and didn't quite know how to frame. And I'm sort of framing it as like, I chat with a friend about the grind, about the real world of auditioning for theater and musical theater, especially when you're just starting out, when you're maybe non-equity EMC, we'll talk about all of that stuff. It's something that I think isn't discussed as much and we spend a lot of time talking about like our successes and I think sometimes it's really important to talk about the failures as well and I couldn't think of a better person to bring on to discuss all of this with me than my dear dear friend Drew Carr who I'm going to bring in in a second. He's actually the first repeat guest that I'm having on the show I'm really trying not to do repeat guests, but the last time I had Drew on, I also had him with our friend Ashton, and we were discussing the play The Inheritance, and this was back when I was doing the show with Berkshire Theatre Group. So obviously that time was, you know, a group with two people plus me, and it was much more structured, and we were focusing on a specific text, and I thought Drew was the perfect person to bring on because he was very much in the trenches with me in my first couple years out of school auditioning. And he's been auditioning longer than I have. He was a professional child actor for many years, which I'm sure we'll discuss. So without further ado, the wonderful, the lovely, I couldn't love this person more, Drew Carr. Hey, it's Che Diaz. Oh my God. <laughs> did you plan I had to. Of, that of course I did. Oh All morning I rehearsed it. I said, what if I did this? I also just watched the latest episode, so it's I, fresh on the mind. What did you think? I hated this past episode. I have to. I absolutely hated it. it like that. I'm sorry. I absolutely. love it. I hated this past episode. I agree. I agree. It's been a difficult watch for me just to divorce myself from the characters I've loved for so long because this is... As Lost Culturistas podcast said, I must give credit where credit is due. This is Sesame Street. This is Sesame Street, and it's being written by the third graders. And yeah, this was really a testament this past week, I must say. But wait, I also didn't know I was the first repeat guest. You are the first repeat guest. How, how I'm feel? feeling honored. I feel unbelievable about it. I'm truly honored. Thank you for having me back. I also want to point out to the listeners that Drew is currently in a formerly known as a wife beater. I don't want to get killed. <laughs> they will cut that, but a tank top. My apartment is, I guess, luckily horribly hot. Yeah. So I'm in as little clothing as I possibly can be. And it's like negative four outside. It's really so. sexy. Before we get too off topic and get into it, sorry. You want to give like a little intro to who you are? Hello, everyone. My name is Drew Carr, dear friend of sweet Katie Bierenbaum here. We met in 2016 doing Fiorello the Musical through Berkshire Theatre Group, but it was our off Broadway debut, indeed. Woo! And a little bit about me is I have been doing this since I was seven. I now am in my 20th professional year of being an actor, which is insane to think about. Did the Hollywood LA game for a while as a kid, moved here for school, went to NYU, lovely place. As Katie now is as a student of NYU, go Violets. <laughs> go Violets. Um, and 
Go Violet or Bobcats if you play sports, which not many people there do. And yeah, graduated in 2016. Here I am sort of figuring it all out. You know, had a, a handful of good years running around the country in the world, you know, pursuing the world of theater. And I, I hope to be doing that again someday. Yes, <laughs> Who knows I, when? I, I just want to add and, and to Drew's horn for one second that he's an incredible dancer triple threat I would say and one of the few people Thank like you because you went to Steinhardt for singing correct yes I did get a vocal performance degree because he was basically so good at dancing already that he was like I don't need this <laughs> if you say so I will accept that I, I won't agree so. but I'll accept it okay I okay, want to take thanks. you back to before because the period I mostly want to talk about which we're both gonna you know have knowledge of is like the immediately post-college, what do you do, mm-hmm. how do you get work, all of that. But because you are you are a unique guest in that, like you did work professionally as a kid, and as you said, you did the LA game, you've been mm-hmm. doing this since you were seven. Can you take me back to, do you feel like you had, you were the decision maker when you were like, I wanna start doing professional theater, or was it your parents? And then what was that like as a kid? It was, I don't know how much of my memories about being a professional kid actor sort of have like the rosy lens of distance attached to it. But I can say when I think about it now, it was all very positive. It was all very fun. There were some moments of of darkness involved, of course, as there's going to be. But I think, you know, in talking to a lot of other friends of mine who were professional kid actors as well, like the catalyst for everybody is usually theater. So you join the local community theater in the town you're in or the regional theater, depending on the caliber of theater. And you were growing up in Houston at first, correct? No, I was in Arkansas, actually. Whoa. Shock and awe, if you can believe it. I was in Arkansas and a large reason that we moved to California when I was 10 I did actually some, I did a couple commercials and I actually filmed a movie in Arkansas just because of our proximity to Little Rock was close enough for me to like film this independent movie with Ashley Judd, which I still have never seen, by the way. It, I don't think did very well. And it really was, it had no wide, I was not invited to the (laughs) premiere because it was an extremely adult film. Like the topics were super, super mature. And what was was your role? It began as this like day player role and then sort of evolved more into a like supporting kid with like a few lines. Day player means like glorified extra for those who don't know. That's sort of what you say if you don't want to say you were an extra. It is a little different. You impressed them so much that you moved up the chain of command. Absolutely. Our director, Joey Lauren Adams, said, that kid's a star. (laughs) And she did her best. But it was, my. I remember my parents telling me that was the moment they knew that, like, I showed a lot of promise. Promise enough for my mom to really make the point that I don't want to raise three kids in suburban Arkansas. Let's, like, go see the world a little bit more, which I'm exceptionally grateful for. And you're the oldest. My sister is 18 months older than me. Then there's me. And then I have a brother who's nearly eight years younger than me. So I sort of feel like the youngest, but also Mm. I don't. Now that he's 20, almost 21. Then LA, then Houston is how it worked. Correct. Yeah. 
And there was a little a little stint in Louisiana prior to Arkansas there, so moved around a lot weirdly. And it was acting first for you, it sounds like, because you were doing this it was. theater and then this film. How did dance come into play? Dance was always something that was kind of easily informed. You know, I started sort of in like a preschool, like tots, tots tapping class, if you will, sort of like did went to ballet with my sister, but I did gymnastics for a really, really long time. And just when I started to get older, the facility was so, so much the same. And the information was already there that I, it just lent itself to dancing really well. And then I realized that I really loved it and just pursued it a little bit more, a little bit more intensely once I got a little bit older. Do you have one that you, of the, you know, triple threat genres, do you of have one three? that has your heart forever? Or is it all symbiotic? Singing definitely is the first love of the three I came to. It's what I showed the most promise in early on. And oh there God, is no... sent me and Haley. Indeed. Our friend Haley has seen them as well. And only a few others. I'm quite protective of them. <laughs> There's videos of me singing like the great ballads of the 80s and 90s. Deeply sort of insensitive now for me to be belting out like Aretha Franklin. I don't think I would do that anymore, but as an eight-year-old kid in Arkansas, just absolutely wailing, it is <laughs> it is fun to see. But singing is brings me the most joy. It feels the most sort of out of body. It feels the most expressive. It feels the way I can get across who I am the, the most. I think but I do love them all. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. And so then you were in LA, and would you consider, I guess what I'm getting at is when you went to college then at NYU, were you sort of like, I'm famous already, I've done this already? Or <laughs> did you feel like, I guess at what level did you feel like you were you were at in your career when you then went to college? I, well, and this is something that I've worked through and sort of had to work on a lot in my early adulthood and now that I'm sort of getting towards the end of my 20s dare I say I've had a lot of confrontation of this because I definitely got to college and had a lot of respect and a lot of reverence for the fact that I was like going to NYU I was in this program that I worked really hard to get into and there was sort of this bizarre fear attached to that of like I don't want to ruffle any feathers but I also don't want to discount the experiences that I've had in the past that like, let me know how to even go seek out an audition or how to look for representation. So I definitely had a bit, you know, a coupling of like delusions of grandeur, grandeur mixed with like a real joy of being in New York, which I'd never been in before for any real extent of time that like married together in this weird way of like, oh, I don't need to, I don't need to bother myself with like auditioning for the student run play. I've, I, I've been paid to do this. So there was some serious arrogance that I needed to check and was something I, that was always on my mind. But I also like, you know, did try to take every opportunity gifted to me or given to me, you know, whether I auditioned for the main stage, play that semester, what have you, anything that it was like, you know, I, I definitely did work hard and I did put myself in pos in experiences and positions that felt new and were not like anything I'd done before. So did but you, it was interesting. Yeah. So did you go into college with representation already and with 
Were you in equity? Were you in SAG? What was the situation there? I was in SAG. I went in, I joined SAG in 2005. So I've been in that old union for a really long time now. But so I wasn't in equity yet. I actually didn't, I don't even think I knew really what equity even was when I got into college. I mean, I knew that it was sort of the equivalent for theater of that SAG was, but I didn't know how to get there. I had sort of verbal agreements with my reps from back in LA, I was sort of still in communication with them. But once we moved to Houston, prior to even going to college, there was, you know, such a limited amount that they could do if you're not living in LA, if you're not living close to them, or where it all happens. But you know, there were occasions in high school where I'd fly out and audition for stuff, or I would get self tapes, which even then were so abnormal to do. Unlike now. (laughs) Yeah, we were talking just before starting recording about how in many ways the audition landscape that we're going to talk about has changed so much because of the pandemic. And so we can't even really speak to it. Like, it would be interesting to... I I should get a friend of mine who graduated from CCM in 2021 on the pod. Oh, I'd love to hear that. He would have some thoughts, I'm sure. But we're talking well, to you been, now. What, sorry, yeah, and I'll say it's been fascinating, like speaking just about like the evolution that auditions have taken. It's like, I feel that I've seen since in my, tw- <laughs> this feels crazy to say, in my 20 year career. Oh God. But it I hope was. that doesn't make me sound insufferable. Was. No, no. It, it is just simply true. And I just need to like, let that be true. But I feel like when I was starting out as a kid there, it was a completely different culture surrounding auditions that had not changed Can until you say more I think, that? yeah, I think culture? honest, the culture then, you know, when I was a kid, of course I was a kid. So there's, there are parameters of protection in place you know, by laws specific to California where kid actors are very prepped, that would, you know, administer some sort of protection in the room. There was always a monitor there with you. You know, there's also a lot of like financial laws in place for kids that are making a lot of money that puts it away so that greedy parents, quote unquote, or guardians can't touch it. But, you know, I felt, I always felt with a couple of exceptions, very safe in a room. I didn't ever feel like it was predatory, but there were experiences of like, you know, little young contemporaries of mine who had very vastly different experiences like that. But even just the logistics of it, of like, you would show up to the hall, there would be like 30 rooms of auditions running. This we'll say was for a, a Crest commercial, like a toothpaste commercial or something. You'd show up, you'd sign in, the monitor would always take a Polaroid of you. They would staple it to the sheet with your measurements. They'd walk you in, you would get stand on your mark. You would look at the cue card, or if you would look at the reader, depending on the direction, usually the director of the commercial was always there. You would say the, the copy you were intended to say, then the monitor would take you out. They would leave your Polaroid there with your headshot and your resume, and then you were done. It was like a lot more procedural, but I do think that it like opened the door for things to be, you know, in in bigger projects, say movies are like, oop, I knocked my headphone out. Like movies or like episodics and stuff, it was a much longer process. There was a lot more discussion. I remember the first like job I ever booked was for just an episode of Criminal Minds, hilariously. Iconic. I, iconic star turn <laughs> of me. 
It was originally written in the script that I was to be found, spoiler alert, in the trunk of a car. Okay. And I had to sit down in front of April Webster, who's this like very famous casting director in LA, and sit down on a couch across from her and like work through being stuck in a trunk, having the emotional experience of what that might be like, and then being discovered. And I was this like 10 year old kid so excited to do this i was like yes this is acting this is amazing and i like did that and like had no understanding of like oh like you know i left the room and i didn't know then i was a child of like oh that was like it's a really intense experience that was like really kind of wild and i think now there's a lot more care taken you know i'm not going to say that generally i know there's oftentimes not as well but there, I think there's more care taken these days of like, we're asking you to do something so intense, something so emotional and emotionally taxing um, that I never experienced as a kid, like in the early aughts. Well, and it sounds like besides your very early start in like regional theater in Arkansas, it sounds like in your childhood, your professional career was mostly auditioning for film and TV. And then yeah. you got to New York, and this makes sense, obviously, but suddenly you were auditioning for theater. Do you think there are huge differences between the two in terms oh, of the absolutely. process? I think that... I think that just... I want to say maybe the opportunity to audition for theater is much larger, simply because there is a larger variable of the type of audition you can participate in. If you're in LA and you're wanting to audition for an untitled David Fincher project, like some huge director name is attached to this feature film, Sony's producing it, Nicole Kidman is attached, you know, big, big names. Like, I see see it for you, (laughs) but it's like, that is the kind of stuff that I think people are going to LA looking to audition for and like looking to have an experience with. And like, you're not going to get in a room like that if you don't have an agent, if you don't have representation, you cannot show up to a quote open call to be legitimately considered for a supporting role or like a, a five line role even in a movie like that. But I think it's like, you know, I'll take like, what's like a big budget show, like the music man, like, Hugh Jackman, Sutton Foster, Music Man. It's like, there actually is the possibility that you show up to a dance call for that show and throughout the, like you go through the process and you book it and you have no credits on your resume. You're not a member of Actors' Equity yet. You don't have an agent. And that is like something that happens. It happened to our friend Haley when she booked Cats. Didn't have her equity card, didn't have an agent, had some, you know, you know, achievements she'd she'd made in her youth and some regional theater credits but like she booked cats because she was sensational and like the best in the room and that's great but i do something you said earlier before we recorded is it is a much more democratic process i think yeah i was going to ask about that i it was something i was thinking about because i think we love to like and we'll get into this of course we love to like bitch and moan about the open call process and sort of ECC setups or even even the open calls that you have for principal care, principal tracks. But I think one of the big questions on my mind is, is 
theater auditioning more democratized than TV and film? Like, are there examples of people actually going into open calls and having, you know, nothing on their resume? And and I think what you're saying is is true. I do think, like our friend Haley is an example of it. I do think that it is more difficult if you're in the singer actor like principal track than the dancer track. Fully. Although I do mm-hmm. know of at least one, there's a girl that studies with my voice teacher that I'm forgetting the name of who was non-ec and went into like a singer ECC for My Fair Lady and then ended up covering, you know, Laura Benanti and is now playing the role on the tour. So like that's that's an example. Yeah. That's like the one example I can think of. Why do you think the dancer track is more helped by that? democratization like why do you think that's the case I think because in my experience as a dancer professionally in like this theater sphere is dancers are needed more there are more opportunities in a show for somebody to dance also like you know they're gone are the days of like a dancer ensemble a singer ensemble and then your principals like it is expected that people dance and sing equally as well as the other however if a show if the show is following the trend that most shows are which is dancing is getting a lot more competitive like the style of dance is much more competitive like we're looking for dancers who do tricks a lot more than we are say somebody who can partner well for like a golden age musical and i think that just the saturation of of those people looking for jobs is so much greater that I think it does appear to be that dancers are getting more work, say, than a singer-actor. But I don't necessarily know that that's true simply because the saturation of dancers in the city, I do think far exceeds that of people like who say don't dance at all. Yeah, I think it, it's a weird like flip uh, double-edged sword edged sword situation because like I think the process to becoming a Broadway dancer may be more democratic or maybe more accessible but the reason for that is because they are given less fame and notoriety and pay in many cases than oh yeah the singer actor principals so in a way it's like once you kick open the door of the singer actor principal you're going to have a much more like fruitful, secure, financially stable actor life, even though it's easier to kick open the door of, of the dancer world. Right. And I will say this and I will die on this hill. It's like there is no one treated worse in the community in theater than a dancer. Tell me about that. I mean, it's it's horrible. It's awful. Um, in my experience... Most of the tracks that I've done or the jobs that I've taken, I have always led with my ability as a dancer first, because as you say, and as I definitely agree, it's the fastest way for me to get in the door. And that's also just like the privilege and the luxury of time that a casting director has to say like, come, hey, 60 of you come into this room, learn this combo, and we'll take it from there. We'll sort of dwindle down those capable and those we think appropriate for 
this show, whatever it may be, will dwindle it down from this large group of 60. Whereas like you can't have 60 people walking into a room to sing the same song at the same time. You're not going to know who is good, who's bad, or who's appropriate. So like I've definitely come at this experience from sort of a privileged place of like then I go in the room I sing and they're like wow let's give him a role like let, like we, he could he can sing on stage by himself and you know in the, in my non-equity experience they're like and we can use him for the dance show that's running at the exact same time we'll do like <laughs> the best example I have is the first summer out of college I worked at a theater upstate I will choose not to name it <laughs> but we but but we can if 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 yeah. that's all right with you i i'll it's for okay. now maybe i will later but we were doing a chorus line and west side story in this in this like 3 month contract and it wasn't we in rep which means that a lot of the ways that actors that are just starting out or people that are just starting out in theater in new york a lot of the ways that they work are by doing summer long regional contracts and I think sometimes people get confused because they'll say like, oh, it's summer stock oh, or, oh, it's not summer stock. But I think summer stock is sort of like a catch-all word for it. But often it'll be, as you say, and this is the most sort of like stocky of it all, where you get a contract to work at a theater for the entire summer and you're either going to do these shows in rep or it'll be like, okay, first we're doing, you know, West Side Story and then we're doing Chorus Line. Right. Yeah, and I think I use summer stock as a catch-all, and really I think the best way I've ever heard it explained is the only difference is, like, back in the day, like 30, 40 years ago, summer stock theaters only operated in the summer, whereas regional theaters were primarily a year-round subscription-based thing for their local community. Like, theater under the stars. Program. Absolutely. Could I? Should I apply? Goes to grad school. yes. Go Violets! So West Side Story and a chorus line, and this is sort of my first really intense experience of being like, oh, people don't care about dancers, even though they are in need of the most care. It was a non-equity theater. Not a single person was protected by equity's rules of how working conditions should be, which is basically the largest reason equity exists for actors, is making sure that the working conditions are safe, feasible, and possible at all to do in a short contract which this relatively was i think it was like almost three months we were working 12 hour days learning west side story and a chorus line together even though they were happening at separate times and easily especially for me being in these shows two of the most heavy dance shows that there are i mean every single count of music in a chorus line is choreographed it's wild love that show could do it forever but it's it's intense to learn the first time and we were being worked so hard that every single person in this cast was injured in some way and the theater we performed in was on the second story of a glorified barn and i left that contract with a broken back ladies and gentlemen a broken back did you because i had when you got back like no i was in debilitating pain for the last few weeks of that contract the set because we did west side story into a chorus line so you know 
which doesn't, either way you do it, it's going to be intense. But I was, you know, Mike in a chorus line. And of course, they wanted me to throw a couple of tricks in that famous song. I can do that. And if, and I was eager to please. I, I was fresh out of college. <sighs> Hopefully I get to do it great. again someday. What? I said, I'm sure you were great. It's one of my, it's one of the favorite shows I've ever done in my life. I've done it a few times, but anyway, I was in debilitating pain three weeks out from the end of that contract. And I'd had a back injury before. And I was like, I think I've sort of reintroduced that. But we were on an unsprung stage. So it was basically like tumbling on concrete. We were doing like 10 shows a week. We were exhausted because the living conditions were also horrendous. (laughs) And I left, went to a chiropractor, then went to a literal surgeon. And they were like, yeah, you have like your whatever vertebrae it was in my lower back was fully injured. It's so crazy. I was actually doing some reading for my graduate school program right before we started to record. And we're for one of my classes, we're reading about, um, I guess broadly, I would describe it as like patronage and the role of patronage in the arts across history. And one of the themes that it's discussing is this association with art that good art requires suffering or requires at least a period of suffering because of these tropes that have existed for because of art in many ways for hundreds of years you think about la bohème like dying of tuberculosis in the gutter so that you can like make a you know beautiful piece of art and i think and because art, this this article was making the point that art is so associated with passion and with love in a way that mm-hmm. other professions necessarily aren't. And in, in many ways, that's a good thing, of course, but it can also be a bad thing because it can be used to justify and excuse working conditions or professional conditions that are just like not okay. But people can yeah. be like, well, it's for your art. Well, you're getting experience. Well, everyone needs these couple years of like the grind, quote unquote. And I think it's a delicate yeah. balance because I do look at, you know, I look at the people who got get out of college and immediately booked like a lead in a Broadway musical. And I'm sort of like, okay, what's going to happen later? Because I do think there is value in the hustle and the grind. But... It's a delicate balance. What do you, what do you think about all of those issues? I mean, I think I agree with you fully. I can say that I never want a 21 year old or 22 year old, like young performer to experience the sort of lack of empowerment to speak Mm -hmm. up about being not like kind of severely injured. (laughs) throughout a process or throughout the last few weeks of a process, I never want that for anybody. And I think that the, you know, there's something to be said about like us as performers, you know, going through the grind or just even expecting the grind as we come up to it, that, you know, the people in positions of power have to be having with themselves as well, because it's like, if the conditions are going to lead to somebody like me having a broken back, what kind of conversations are they having as the people who sign the checks, as the people who sort of administer the living conditions and just the whole job to you? What are they saying and what are they doing to prevent that from happening? And the sad thing is that oftentimes 
nothing is being done because the contract ends, that group of people goes away, they come back to New York in the next nine to 10 months to audition for the next round of shows, and they get a crop of 21 and 22 year olds who are up and ready to meet the grind working at this theater. Well, I think there's a difference though, or there should be a difference rather between like the grind or the hustle and like what I can only call sort of inexcusable conditions, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's a huge difference between, I mean, I'm sure some people would say that like no one should have to, you know, get up at 5 a.m. and wait online in the cold to put your name on an unofficial list and then wait in a room. To that, I would say, like, no one is forcing you. I, th- I think it's, like, terrible in many ways and sort of laughable, and you can look at it. And I have pictures from those years when I was doing that where I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, my God. But I think there is a difference between this sort of self-motivating, like, I have to get up every morning at 5 a.m. to go to these auditions and take dance classes and work seven other jobs to make it work versus you know, working and living in unsafe conditions. And I think hopefully with all the conversations that are going on right now in response to the pandemic, but also in response to the Black Lives Matter movement and broader Mm -hmm. conversations about equity, I think hopefully that conversation is, and that distinction is being had, but I'm not sure. What do you think? I definitely think that the conversation's being had. I in my weaker moments don't have a lot of hope that any legitimate change is going to come from them. I maintain hope and that they will. And I think that my desire to continue on as an actor and as just a person in this community, I, I won't really stop until some real significant change is made. But it is, you know, as you say, or sort of as you allude to, it's, it is such a conversation of privilege. It's, You know, the people who are working seven jobs at once getting up and still getting up at 5 a.m. to go stand in line for, I don't know, Mary Poppins at Ogunquit Theater up in Maine. It's like there, there are people that that is the only option that they have in order to make the art that they want to make. Whereas that's not the case for a lot of people. They're are people who don't need to work seven jobs, who can just focus solely, have a one-track mind about like going to auditions and getting a job and like working the room and networking. And like, it's just about, I think, what a lot of young people right out of college or even before have like the mental capacity to take on. Cause you're right, like it isn't, you know, there no one is forcing anybody to go stand online or in line at 5 a.m. at Pearl Studios in the scariest part of New York, which is Midtown West, and and do that. I, but at the same time, it's like, it's like the necessary evil of it is so pervasive and it's so expected that it's like, how do we get rid of that? And I just don't have a lot of answers. Yeah, I think, and like the, the question of like these sort of stocky or regional theaters, how do they change how they work? I mean, their budgets are just minuscule, which is a a broader problem. And of course you can say to them like, okay, then you need to spend differently. But I do think that unfortunately the way that, the way the arts is funded in this country creates a situation where the best working conditions are 
on Broadway. And sometimes those conditions too are not good, but the best working conditions are on Broadway. And then as you go down, they get worse and worse. When that shouldn't really be, I mean, I was having a conversation with our other mutual friend, Billy, the other day, where I used the term regional theater. And he was like, we shouldn't use that term anymore. It should just be theater. Like, why is there that false distinction? And I think, I agree with him that that distinction like covers up a lot of sins. But then those theaters Mm -hmm. would say to me like, well, what are we supposed to do? We have like $2. So. Right. It's tough. I wanna, oh, sorry, you go. No, I was just gonna say, and so much of it has to do with like where in the country you are, what communities you're serving. And it's like, you know, I grew up partially in Houston where Mm -hmm. our mutual friend Billy is also from. (laughs) And he has experience with this theater as well. But like theater under the stars is the huge, that in the alley. Luckily Houston is like a wonderful, wonderful theater town, has a pretty lively arts community, community, I say. But you know, theater under the stars is actually, when I worked there not that long ago, is the highest paying quote unquote regional theater in the country. And it is because equity has forced them into this contract with them due to the community, the patronage of people, because it's a nonprofit, so they have a board and they accept, you know, massive donations, but also, and Houston is exorbitantly wealthy, so the donations are large, but, you know, you go on to like Ticketmaster to get a ticket for Beauty and the Beast, let's say, which is the show I did with them, and anything in the orchestra is no cheaper than $250, which is equivalent to like, I mean, I went and saw company the other day, sat in the orchestra for $60. Yeah. I mean, it's just the incongruencies there is are so vast based on where you are. And it's totally. fascinating, but it's, you know, if you're in a, an underserved community, it's, it's really bleak. And I do have to give credit where credit is due while we're having this discussion, because I mean, I think Actors' Equity has many problems, but throughout Mm -hmm. this conversation, I keep thinking, like, thank God we have a union, because... Oh, fully. The situation, the conditions that actors would be working under, if not for the union, and they continue to make strides. I mean, I was thinking before we started about the change that the union made, I think, last year, or maybe, yeah, last year, that now you just have to prove that you've like done such and such number of professional shows in order to gain entry. And yes, I think like, I think they obviously want money and there are exorbitant membership costs. The flip side of that is that the like weird gatekeepy, like how do you get into actors equity was a really effective way of making of gatekeeping essentially of making Mm -hmm. it so that only people that had worked at like certain types of elite theaters could get the protections that all actors deserve that we've fought for so if you have worked and again it says it speaks to location as you said if you had worked at like you know some random stock in like a really rural town for summer after summer after summer you could 
never be in the union and never get those protections. Whereas I worked my second summer at Berkshire Theatre Group and like got my equity card. Right. And there's such a fascinating and sort of unfortunate conversation that has always sort of existed, I think, within the community of actors that are in equity of like this validity that you gain or this credibility, I guess is a better word to say, that you gain dependent upon how you got your your equity card. Mm. And it's like, I know so many people who did like a theater works tour, for example, which for those who don't know is like, it's... (laughs) It's youth theater. So it's like youth theater that like goes on like these sort of micro tours, so to speak, to like different places in the Northeast, typically, that'll do a youth theater show, something derived by the writers. And it's like you as an actor, you're driving the bus, you're putting the set together. I mean, it is like guerrilla theater. I think you're billed as an assistant stage manager on your contract. Yeah, in some cases, yeah. I don't know when that stopped. That did stop at some point. I don't remember when, though. And I never did this, but I know some people that did, and the majority of the reason people do it is to get their equity card, because at the end of it, you are given your equity card. And there is this bizarre stigma in, in the actor community of, like, if you got your equity card through a theater works tour it's like less valid which i think is insane and it's just remnants of this like gatekeeping mentality of like the superiority of being in equity is a thing when in reality that should not ever be what a union is a union should protect everybody working in that field regardless of like who decides it's valid or not Totally. It's really interesting because there is such a, like when you are doing these auditions in New York, even after your inequity, and maybe especially after your inequity, the contrast in the room, you're still all going to the same open calls, but the contrast in the room between the equity people and the non-equity people is like, it's almost like, I can only compare it to like hazing in college. Like... (laughs) And I was, uh, yeah. I was guilty of it too. I specifically remember like being in these rooms and like once I was in equity, getting to getting the privilege of being able to show up when the list was like counted, which was usually like nine if the auditions started at ten, and yeah. sort of sitting down, you know, in the middle of the room, plopping my coat down and sort of like staring down the non-equity people as if to say like, why are you even here? Like, you're not gonna get seen. You've been here since 4 a.m. you could leave. I don't think I was alone in that. And I feel like when I was EMC, that was the, that was the prevailing viewpoint too. Oh, absolutely. I had an experience in college my senior year. I was not equity yet. And a group of my classmates, I can't remember what this was. It was some sort of catch-all audition for multiple regional and summer stock theaters happening in one place. It had a name. It wasn't Straw Hats. It was something that, like, they had put on the theaters themselves. Right. And one of my classmates had this idea. There, you know, there was a list that somebody would go put up at 3 o'clock or something in the morning, an unofficial crazy. list. It's crazy. That we would pray, we would pray all morning long that the equity monitor at that audition would honor this list <laughs> and take it into consideration if and only if Honoring the they list had enough time. 
honoring the list is a phrase that I haven't heard in years and it just like reached like the the recesses of my memory and just like I know I'm already I'm immediately sweating I'm immediately sweating and want to cry but they would only quote honor this list if there was time and frequently there was not if there was time to see non-equity actors after all the equity and EMC which is the candidacy program to get into equity had been seen and this classmate of mine went the night before, posted this list up at like 9 p.m. on, say, Thursday night. Auditions were on Friday. I did not ask to be on this list, but they put me on anyway as like number 10. And we were almost laughed out of town. We were almost, I mean, it, it was like mob mentality ensued on other non-equity actors that someone had the audacity to go put a list up prior to like the the un the totally undiscussed and unofficial like time of 3 a.m or 5 a.m or whatever it was in the morning someone decided to get up and go start the list but they were apps i mean they there was this whole online community on backstage I think, what was it? Or like audition update, audition all these update. websites that it's called That's like the so bitching bad. post. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Where you could go on and like anonymously discuss like all of the nonsense going on or like, oh, um, oh, Wicked, Wicked's having an open call for dancers today. There's not a lot of people there. Like be sure to check it out or like, oh, don't even bother going to Phantom of the Opera today. Like there's 20 million people there. And they they tell you if people if shows were actually looking for replacements or if it was just you know there's six like every six months you have to have an audition that's an equity rule even if you don't need to replace anybody if no one's leaving the show, I mean the the rules and and just the culture of it is just so wild. Yes. I'll never forget people like using our names. There were like pictures of this list going up places. <laughs> oh, it was absolutely insane. And I was livid. That's back when I cared about things like that. And I was like, how can't believe you put my name on that list? I didn't even ask you to. Now I'm going to get blacklisted. I mean, I thought I'd never work. It was crazy. That's how pervasive it is. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad we're getting into audition update culture because there really was like two or three years of my life where like <laughs> audition update was bookmarked. Like, And that is because it Hopefully. has to be. But it was really like you would check the culture was you would check first thing when you got up in the morning. So especially when mm -hmm. I was EMC, you would get up at like 5 a.m. and you would check audition update. And it would be like, there are, you know, 20 non-ec in line and 10 EMCs. And then people would be like, bump, 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 bump. That's what you would say. And like the, the algorithm would like bump it up and like you, and it would update. Yes. And also I want for the listeners, this was like an absolutely rudimentary ugly oh. website this was not an app this was no. something some like musical theater kid made in their dorm room being like i'm gonna go to new york this weekend and i need to figure out what's going on because i only have a limited amount of time there and it was unattractive it was not easy to navigate and yet it, it, we we are all girls who code now because of it it was yeah it's the reason i work in tech and Drew now works in tech, we should all point out. <laughs> I work in tech. It's so hot, honestly. Me and my and my white tank top working in tech. I hot. love it. I love yeah. it. So walk me through what like a sort of day in the life for you was when you were in 
the phase of your most like I'm not equity and I'm trying to audition and go to as many open calls as possible. Absolutely. So I did have the the wonderful privilege of going to school here. So I, you know, did start here being New York. I did start, you know, the whole trying out of like, let me get up at 5 a.m., go to Pearl Studios on 35th Street and see what's up. And I didn't want to ask say, anybody for help. We should say, what, what, first of all, and I, and I remember there was a phase of the pandemic where an acquaintance of mine published perhaps the Bible, one of the funniest things I've ever seen online, like lambasting the various audition studios that there are in New York. But we should yes. say for those who don't know, there is Midtown West, as you say, a region of New York right by Penn Station, right by beautiful Penn mm-hmm. Station, that houses sure. where most of the theater auditions are or where there used to be. Now we have some exceptions, but there's of course Pearl Studios, there was There's Ripley Greer just a block and a half up. Ripley Greer from was there. Sort of tropical themed inexplicably. I like to call it Club Ripley Greer because as soon as you get off the elevators, there is a Ripley Greer step, <laughs> step and repeat. repeat. Yes. And fun disco lights. Yes. Yeah. And fake plants everywhere. And and like a lost and found. And mm-hmm. I think they I think Ripley has the best vibes. Pearl Studios. Best vibes. Pearl Studios is like. I can only describe the lighting as like you're about to get seen by a gynecologist. Like it's just sort of invasive yes. lighting. Horrible. Very clinical fluorescence. And then there used to be what was that place that always Nola Studios? Yes, Nola Studios with the saloon door bathroom stalls. Yes. So crazy. Yeah. And it was like on fifty third no 54th street it was like right above studio 54 yeah it was right above studio 54 i just remember that because that was where fireside auditions always were Uh uh-huh there's Um, also shetler studios in that same building that people like rarely ever use but it was much nicer than nola so it made no sense shetler the vibe of shetler in my experience was like i'm doing a first reading of my new musical in shetler studios yes it was a bunch Um, of like 19 year old playwrights (laughs) Yes. A Which lot whom we of, support like, and love. Whom we support and love and hold in our hearts. And a lot of like song cycles being tried out in Shetler yeah. Studios. Are we forgetting any of the major audition houses? Well, there's Chelsea Studios. That was like, that's where everything theater works ever happened. Sort of and every really was. bad experience. Oh, yeah. That was a good experience, actually. That was a great experience. Chelsea Studio. I think those are the, the biggies, right? Those are the major ones. I mean, of course, there's like Chelsea, but that doesn't count. Yeah, like, and then shows used to rehearse at Pearl and such, but now there's, like, designated, like, studio, like, or New 42 Studios, which is where, like, that's where, like, shows, like, Broadway shows rehearse. But, like, these are most, those are mostly audition, exclusive audition spaces. Every time I've gone to New 42, I've run into an ex in the elevator. That really tracks, and something awesome about me is I've never been to New 42 Studios, (sighs) never in my life. Better get cast. And maybe I never will. <laughs> Hamilton, I'm like, Hamilton, <laughs> call me. If you're listening. Okay, sorry. So you were describing your day in the life. So I, I dipped my toes in in college. 
I graduated and I was working at Soul Cycle, famed boutique fitness um, arena of spin. That is so, a whole other special episode about Soul Cycle. Uh, oh, girl, I could talk about it for hours. Wrote my thesis on it. So I would work really early in the morning at 530. The shift started. And so I said, you know what? I If I have to be up at four, I could get up at three. So I would get up before my 5.30 a.m. shift at SoulCycle. I did not do this long. Wow. Oh, yeah. And I would, depending on what was happening that day, let's say I was auditioning for La Jolla Playhouse, Peter Pan. And I looked at that. I looked at that breakdown. I said, I could be Peter Pan and they would do right to hire me. So I would go with a loose leaf sheet of paper and a roll of tape and a pen. And I would tape up if I was the first one there. And sometimes I was, and many times I wasn't, which is equally as dark. <laughs> I would tape up a loose leaf sheet of paper outside of the building. I'm outside of the front door of the building. I would tape it up, put number one and write my name down and then go about my business. I would go to work, shift ended around 10.30, I would beg and plead to be let out by 9.30 so that I could get back to the studio for the 10 a.m. start of the audition. Knowing full well they probably weren't going to see me until about 2 p.m. if they were going to see non-equity at all. <laughs> right. But sometimes if they had enough equity people that didn't show up early enough, they would let you go in with the first group of dancers. This was always for a dance call. I rarely ever did this for like a singer's call because it, it wasn't really the same for a singer or an actor's call, but that's what I would do. And then I would like, you know, go take a dance class. Once that audition was over, I'd like go take a dance class at Steps or BDC. I'd like, maybe I'd have a voice lesson later that day. And then I would just like do it all over again. Every day I could manage. And then the days I didn't work, I would still do it and just not have to worry about asking to leave early and losing my job. Do you have any audition horror stories that you're willing to share? This one is kind of hilarious. I was I was doing a show. So I was working at Rest in Honored Peace Westchester Broadway Theater. And this is sort of a fun like job story as well as an audition horror story mixed into one. I was auditioning for Main State Music Theater, the role of Bobby C in Saturday Night Fever, which I spoiler alert did end up booking Damn, even with this story so i'm telling you i can't my worst audition story worst audition story that's insane absolutely well they couldn't really hold it against me and you'll see why so i had a really early call for an audition for this theater on a two show day we had a two show day wednesday and this was like we were living at home in the city us in the show and we were like bust into Westchester because it's only like a 30 minute drive upstate. So I went in for like a 930 appointment, had to sing this really high song. So I was up at like five in the morning, made myself breakfast, went to the audition. It went really, really well because I needed to warm up and like be like ready to sing like a high C or something crazy. And it went well. And I said, awesome. Went back home, got my stuff ready on the in the car on the way to the show. I start to feel a little funny. And I say, hmm, interesting. We get to the show. We're doing a chorus line at Westchester Broadway Theater. Go start doing my typical warm-up, like an extensive, you know, yoga cardio warm-up. Get me ready for the show. Didn't want to end or anything. <laughs> and I just sort of lay there, and I'm like, something doesn't feel right, but I think uh -oh. I'm just sort of nervous and a little overworked. 
The show starts, and I am absolutely positively ill. I am sick as a dog. And there comes a point in the show, and I, mind you, my number, I can do that, I was playing Mike again, is like the second number in the show. And I once again was asked to throw some tricks. I was so sick doing this number that instead of doing my flips, I literally walked down stage to my next mark to deliver the button of the song. Then after that's at the ballet, I left stage. Our stage manager offstage, offstage right, looked at me and goes, oh my God, what is wrong with you? You can't go back out there. I then proceeded to go into the dressing room and throw up like three or four times, like violently. I was so ill. I think still, I'm not sure what it was. I think it was food poisoning. But I was asked to come back to my audition in between shows that day. So I called my agent and I said, I just threw up and had to leave the show and our swing had to go on. Our swing, David Grinrod, God bless you, split track my role and something else he was already on for. So he was doing double duty and people like random people had to take my lines. Like it was a nightmare. It was absolute nightmare. So then they said, oh, that's okay. And this is like what they expect of you as an actor. They said, can he come back tomorrow at 8 a.m. before our day starts? And I said, I just told you that I'm like, violently ill and you want me to just like somehow get better in 12 hours and be back at 8 a.m to pearl studios to audition for you and i woke up the next morning and i was still so so sick was throwing up at pearl studios truly so ill i called out of the show that night of course but i showed up sang the song again honestly very badly and ended up getting that job i don't know how but they knew they I like walked in, they were like, Thanks for coming. How are you feeling? And I was like, I'm great. <laughs> I feel fine. And like threw up right before I went in the room and then came up and like absolutely puked right after. Wow, I never It's a miracle knew I didn't puke there in the room. That was horrible. Wow. My worst audition story is like a different vibe and more like my fault, which is my first year out of school. <laughs> Yeah, my first year out of school, I did Fiorello, and Fiorello, I've talked about this on the pod before, but it was like a beautiful experience that also spoiled me, because I think after Fiorello, I was like, oh, well, I'm always going to be in an off-Broadway show that gets reviewed by the New York Times. Oh, of course. Um, I felt the same way. (laughs) And so then I was working at a restaurant at the time. I was hostessing at a restaurant. And oh, I think I know this story. And I really wanted to audition for encores. So I got the audition and it was for, you know, singer, because encores, because it's doing these old shows, like you said, often will have a dancing ensemble, a singing ensemble, and then the principals. Mm-hmm. And usually the singing ensemble is like four people or whatever. So it was an audition for the singing ensemble. And encores, I should have done more research for because this was before I had assistant directed for encores. You know, the music, it's its run by Rob Berman, who has been there since the inception. And the whole thing is like precise, precise, precise music. But because yeah. they were getting me in at the last minute, they were like, okay, you have to learn like the middle part harmony because the concept for this show is that the, the three female singers oh, would sing like all of their stuff in sort of like a girl group from the 40s in really tight sort of 
Busby Berkeley. Sort of giving female barbershop quartet. Yes, exactly. Harmony. Like the Andrews sisters. So I think I got this information like a day before my audition. The music and everything. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. My, then I got a note from my boss at the restaurant that was like, there's now a mandatory hostess meeting at the restaurant. I wasn't supposed to work that day, but a mandatory hostess meeting at the restaurant at like two. And let's say my, my audition was at like three. And the restaurant was on the upper that, west side. They said that the same day? Yeah. And the restaurant was on the upper west side and the mm-hmm. audition was um, at Pearl. But I was so young. I should have just been like, no, I can't come. But instead, I, I was so scared. But I was like, oh, I, okay, I'll make it work. And so I went, and I was expecting the meeting to be like 15 minutes long. But it was going on and on and on and on. And then I met, so I finally was like, I'm so sorry, I have to leave. They were mad. I run out of the restaurant. Mm-mm. I make the poor decision. I, I make the poor decision where I think a cab is going to be faster than the subway. Rookie, not the not the right call so i'm in uh-huh. a cab going downtown and the time of the audition has passed like i'm fully late at this point i'm pulling a 27 dresses i'm changing in the cab at a certain <laughs> point dresses. it's now 4 15 15 minutes past my audition i'm like nine or ten blocks away from pearl so i pay and i get out and i literally sprint in my heels from where I was to Pearl Studios. Oh my God. Run upstairs. I get there and I'm like completely out of breath, completely out of breath. And they're like, okay, you're here. We can get you in right now. And I swear to God, it was the worst. It was bad work on my part. It was the worst thing I've ever presented to people. Like it was bad. And I remember I, you know how at Pearl, they have bathrooms, but then they have like changing rooms that people don't really uh-huh. use that you can like lock. Yeah. So I left the audition and I like ran to one of those changing rooms and locked it and just like burst into tears and sobbed. Oh God. Like maybe the most of, definitely one of the top sobs I've had in my life. So that's my worst audition story. Oh God, I hear that. I would have been so humiliated, but like everybody has to have one of those. It's actually, it's mandatory. Like your hostess meeting. Yes. (laughs) The thing (laughs) is that like, I was so freaked out that night. I was like, I mean, sort of like what you were saying. I was like, I'm never going to work again. Encores is going to make it their mission Mm -hmm. to like publicize to other people, not that I am bad. And like truly the sun rose the next day and literally like three months later or something, I was assistant directing at Encores and nobody remembered. Nobody had any memory. Oh God. And that's the thing that is so helpful once you have a bit of distance from crap like that. It's like, oh, that was my worst, but they are seeing thousands of people. <laughs> the crap we've done pales in comparison. Uh, I think the That's metaphor, <laughs> which I've talked about on so many episodes of this pod before, but specifically with our friends Haley and Will, is like this contrast in the theater between like the aesthetic beauty of what we are creating together on stage and then the sort of gross dirty scrappiness of Mm -hmm. the conditions and us like 
even when you're working on Broadway, those theaters are wild backstage. I'll never forget once I was in Pearl Studios and this was when Catherine McPhee Foster, Republican, was about to be in Waitress. And I Uh went into the bathroom and she was in the bathroom. And like, (gasps) I just think that that would never happen in movies and TV. There is not one circumstance in which if I was like auditioning for a movie, I would somehow interact with like Nicole Kidman, who is precast in the movie. There's just no right. way. There's something about theater that is inherently like scrappy and democratizing in a way. Yeah, I'll never forget when I had to help Molly Ringwald turn her location services off on her iPhone in the Telsey lobby. Oh my God. It was iconic. I actually didn't know how to do it, but she asked me and I like pantomimed knowing how to do it until we finally realized that I just like wanted to hold Molly Ringwald's phone and talk to her for a little bit. So I I didn't actually do it, but it was hilarious. I didn't know that story, Drew. Yeah, I was going in for a track and waitress that I couldn't be more wrong for, which I walked in the room. That's another horror story. We walked in the room and the guy who was casting it literally laughed out loud. And he said, this was a mistake. And I went, I know, but I prepared. So you're going to listen to me saying this. Thank you. And she was there for some movie. But I was also like, Molly Ringwald still auditions? Guess so. Guess so. Wow. Wow. Do you have any favorite or best audition stories that made you feel like really great oh i do the this this was in 2017 i want to say maybe 18 i got an audition for a new musical happening at playwrights horizons and it was this like sort of loosely historical loosely biographical story about a woman in like early 19th century Texas, I believe. Maybe it wasn't Texas, but it was the South. And you know, the top, like the, I, they gave me the script, which always feels kind of cool and legitimate when you're like, they're like, read the script. And I'm like, ah, oh, yes, I'm being optioned for this. I can say no if I want. Always makes me feel more important than I am. But I read the script and I like loved, 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 loved the story so much. And I was being invited in for a role that I was like, oh, I could do this tomorrow. Like this is, this really feels very right for me. The song that I had to prepare was like beautiful and fit me so well. And I walked in, I went, the audition was happening at Playwrights Horizons on like the fourth floor, wherever they have their studios. And it was the most affirming, beautiful, respectful, kind, all good things experiences, experience I've ever had in an audition room. Of course, her name is going to evade me now, but she's still the casting director there. It was her, the playwright, and the composer, and then a casting associate, whose name I also can't remember, who was also very lovely and kind. And I had the most amazing experience because they worked with me. They said, how do you feel about this role? Like, what was, you know, I I worked, did the scene, sang the song. They were super complimentary and very, said lots of kind things. They were like, so what do you think about this? And it felt like a work session on an initial audition, which like is so rare. And I've, I didn't end up getting that, but they brought me in three more times for that and like had me do some like sort of chemistry reads, I guess, with people that were pre-cast from like a little out of town it had done a little prior. 
But it was just, and I ended up actually sending a thank you email to the woman whose name I can't remember, who was the lead casting director of Playwrights Horizons, bad of me. But I emailed her and I just, and I was like, I just wanted to thank you because I have never felt so respected and affirmed and like human in an audition before. And I explained the ways that she was able to do that. And I was like, if only every audition experience could be like this, it would be, I think the community would be a much uh, healthier one. So thank you. I mean, it was, I, I will never forget it as long as I live. I think that's beautiful. I love that. I think I knew that story, but I can't remember. I've, I talk about it a lot just because it, it's the one time that's ever happened, I think. Well, it's amazing how, I mean, it sounds like it just takes like time and focus. And as you mentioned mm-hmm. early, on the part of casting, I mean, and creative. And you mentioned earlier how like, you know, according to equity rules, these shows have to have these open calls every few months or at the beginning of the process where they have to see everyone. And mm-hmm. obviously that's one, of, again, one of those double-edged swords because there were so many auditions that I went to where it was clear that the people behind the table did not want to be there and had no interest oh, yeah. in hearing from me and were thinking about, you know, what they were going to have for dinner. But I also get that because, as you said, the stuff that they see, and they see it all day. Like, I've been a reader, and it is crazy, and you get so burnt out and exhausted and tired. But on the other end of the spectrum, if you, like, just giving people their attention, your attention and focus makes all the difference in the world. It changes someone's whole outlook on just the process of auditioning, I think. We do have to wrap up soon because clearly you and I can yes. go on forever. But we I could... want to ask before we do, we've been talking a lot about you know auditioning and summer stock and regional theater and just getting started and all that. Do you have any advice for anybody who may be listening? I know the circumstances are different because of the pandemic and everything now is self-tape and virtual, but do you have advice for anybody who may be listening and looking to break into the industry and don't have connections or don't have a way in and are probably gonna be doing these routes? I absolutely do, Katie. I thank you for asking. You're welcome. I think that the greatest advice I could bestow on a younger person entering into this really cutthroat, difficult, yet still beautiful industry is that so much of the game is discouraging and so much of what you think you have to submit yourself and subject yourself to that feels like sort of preordained, you really don't have to. Like, what makes you feel good and what makes you happy and excited to get up, I don't know, at five o'clock in the morning to go tape a loose leaf sheet of paper to a building, like what is going to serve the out the, the end result of that is all you should focus on. Like to, to network sort of horizontally instead of laterally is the best thing you can do because the people in the trenches with you are going to be the people, you know, those that stick with it. Many of them will and many of them won't, but those that stick with it are going to be the ones you grow up with in this industry as young professionals, as artists, and they're going to be the ones that you call on when you're in your 30s, 40s, 50s, etc. to say, let's do this. Like we, we, you know, I hate 
sort of the term we paid our dues, but it does kind of ring true as I get older to think, oh, I, I have seen some stuff. I have experienced some less than exciting things in this life and in this industry and in, in, in my artistry. And yet the people that I think understand that and can relate to that are the ones that are still invested in it and are the ones that I think are my closest friends even now. They really stand the test of time. So I think it's just do what serves your heart and your soul first and and always keep an eye out for those that are doing it for that same reason. I think that's such good advice also because I think like a lot of our sort of worst audition stories that we shared or worst work experiences I think could have been helped a lot by sharing and laughing about it and I think that is like mm-hmm. commonplace in our industry but I but I think there is something so freeing about being able to laugh about how our fate are often in the hands of other people and so much of our lives are out of our control I also think it's part of what we were talking about earlier about like taking taking the the shot some of the shine off of the industry and being able to be like hey like we're all in this together it's gonna be there's gonna be days where we throw up there's gonna be days where we suck there's gonna be days where we're late and we're just gonna if we love it we're just gonna push on through and keep doing it and I also think you're right that like your friends are your resources and so many of the people that I've had on the pod have been people who have made things together. I mean, especially in the pandemic when nothing was being made, Mm -hmm. that was such a fruitful time. Yeah, and the last thing I'll say about this is like, I actually get asked a lot by friends of mine now, why theater? You know, I started Mm -hmm. in film and TV primarily, like that's sort of the where my professional life began. And I had an experience in LA as a kid where I was doing a play and I had this real epiphany, this like aha moment that I still hearken back to now at my age and think that was when I knew that there is a community within theater that does not exist anywhere else. And it was what brought me to the realization that I wanted to be a theater actor, that I wanted to focus on that, that still, even when I'm in the midst of a pandemic and a hard dry spell as so much of us are professionally and artistically it is what sort of motivates me forward to rem- and reminds me that like this is what i meant to do because of the people that do this and it's and it's really helpful and i think everyone has sort of a moment like that which is beautiful i think that's really true i was at a get together last night with college friends who all did the same musical theater club group that I was in called the Princeton Triangle Mm -hmm. Club and of course it was just like and I think this is true I mean this is true of like people who are in Fiorello with me people who have done shows in the Berkshires with me for all its flaws like theater people when they're amazing there's just nobody like them there's nothing like it there's nothing like it and there's nothing better than like laughing with other theater people I just it's it's magical it really is it's the stuff of life it's the stuff of life and I think it's like 
that very particular that very particular brand of person that is able to like make fun of themselves and also look at the world and observe the world with a sharp eye because we're all actors so we have to be observing all the time i think that's what makes it and and that we're all in the trenches together as you say like it's hard work and we still show up to do it and it's and it's just so fun to do when you have like beautiful, brilliant people by your side. It Absolutely. makes it all worth it. Absolutely. You know, theater people can be like bad when they're bad, but when they're great, it's like, there's nothing like it. They're the, they're the best. And you're one of those. I. And so are you. I can't thank you enough for doing this. Do you feel like, I mean, I still kind of feel like we only scratched the surface of all these issues, but do you, uh, do you feel like there's anything else you want to say or anything you want to like, I have nothing to plug unfortunately that and that will change and that's the optimism I'm talking about folks yes, <laughs> we gotta have it we, gotta make, we have to foster have it. it it's hard but it's got to be there I th- I mean I think we sort of got to it all I really wanted to make some grand eloquent claims about the beauty of theater you and I hope, I hope I did that you and y'all can drag did. me in the comments if you want but I already got dragged no, I, I got a review. I think I you sent did? you about oh you did yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. negative review. So I I've, I know at the beginning You've of the interview I was drinking green tea, but hopefully you didn't hear any ice smashing listeners. Yeah, disgusting. And you know what? We have to take a, a page out of Che Diaz's book. I'm right? so glad you brought it back. To it was really full circle. <laughs> I can't thank you enough for that. If the listeners can't tell, I just love talking to Drew so much. Really, an anchor of my life and of the pandemic. And I could talk for hours more. But I hope you enjoyed I this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. Thank you so much, and have a good week, listeners. Bye.